Listeners, start your engines. episode 48 rob here on this episode we're continuing through the planet of the apes mega series going through all nine films from 1968 to 2017 that's five decades of apes and this week we're doing the third film from the original five uh film series on this episode film critic sarah michelle fetters joins us to discuss 1971's escape from the planet of the apes as always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 1971's Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new, astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. We'll take the female first. Well, she seems to be pretty smart. All right, we'll go for the banana. Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. I don't believe it. Sarah, are you mad? Until we know who our friends are and who our enemies... And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. The president convenes a special board of inquiry. Have you a name? Zira. Does the other one talk? Only when she lets me. <laughs> Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, speaking of not moving in a straight line, we're doing our third installment of the Planet of the Apes franchise, looking at 1971's Escape from the Planet of the Apes. And I am honored to welcome back to the show, film critic Sarah Michelle Fetters. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me and having me back. Yeah, last time we talked about uh, The Road Warrior, I believe. And... This is even, I would argue this is an even crazier uh, detour in this franchise. So before we get to, to the Planet of the Apes world, uh-huh. uh, tell people who you are and everything you have going on in the world. Well, my name is Sarah Michelle Fetters. I am the film critic and editor at moviefreak.com. I can't talk all of a sudden. Sorry, I have a cold. Moviefreak.com. Um, and then I'm also the film critic for the Seattle Gay News. And then I freelance for a bunch of different v- publications. Um, I'm a member of the Seattle Film Critics Society. Uh, and yeah, I just love to write and talk and consume film. They're in the right place then. I'm glad I'm glad we got you back for this one, Sarah. Uh, so what is your 
history with the Planet of the Apes specifically. I know just before this call, you said you've seen each of these at least, you know, you know, a few times over the years. What was your introduction to this franchise? Well, the introduction was through my parents because, you know, we mm-hmm. used to, we were always watching films together. We were always doing stuff like that. It was ben- beneath the Planet of the Apes was on television and my dad was like, oh, my gosh, you have to watch this film. You have to watch it with a." And so I got to stay up late that night and watch it on, you know, network television with commercials and all that. And then the end of that movie happened. I'm like, why the heck did you make me watch this? Because <laughs> that <laughs> ending is so crazy and so nihilistic. Um, but he's like, well, we'll watch the first one so that you can understand how great it was. And so, that, so it just kind of got me. I watched the first one. Um, then we hunt we had to hunt down the others and whenever they were on television or whatnot, I made it, you know, I, I had to watch them and, you know, the, the video age happened and I was able to actually watch them in sequence and see how it all worked. And that was very cool. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. And then, you know, as far as the Burton remake and then um, the three other new films, that's my job. I mean, those have all come out while I've been a working film critic. So I've watched them all because, A, I had to, but also because I was curious and I was interested and I wanted to see where they would go. Um, And I have to say, I have always, I've never been completely disappointed by any Planet of the Apes movie, even Battle for the Planet of the Apes and even Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. None of them have ever completely disappointed me because there's just something inherently interesting about all of them, even when they don't quite work. Absolutely. No, I agree completely. And that's, I was telling you just before we started, that's one of the big criteria for this podcast when I decide what franchises to follow. Either everything's got to be, every installment has to be good or memorable in some way, or it has to take some big wild swings. Like we started this podcast talking about uh, the Child's Play franchise, which it shifts perspective to like, you know, there's the three movies that are from Andy's perspective, then you're all like, Chucky and Tiffany, and then you're on Nika, and then now they're on television with a whole different set of characters in addition to everyone that came before. So Planet of the Apes, I think, doesn't get a lot of credit because these first original five movies, I feel like, are vastly underrated as a franchise. Everybody talks about the original film, and you know, with good reason, there's that, that epic twist ending and everything. Uh, but the fact that Beneath like you were alluding to, and we will have just talked about on the previous episode of this podcast ends with the planet spoilers, the planet exploding and just like a voiceover, or I think it's, it's either a voiceover or it's like text on screen. It was like, Oh, and then, and then, and then, you know, everything went dark, basically, et cetera. Credits. You're like, what? What? Like, I don't, and, and it's, and it's Charlton Heston's the one to hit the button on top of everything. Uh, the fact that a sequel, happened after that is already crazy in in and of itself you blew the world up there is no planet of the apes or anything else for that matter where do you go next and the answer is time travel i guess Um, from the planet of the apes exactly exactly so there's you know a little bit of light retconning in that cornelius zira and dr milo uh you know i guess reverse engineered Taylor's spacecraft and took it back to 1971, or I guess it's set in like 1973. It's around there. Uh, it's it's the the numbers get a little fuzzy around this in this movie, obviously, because especially the next one jumps like 10, 20 years in the future. Uh, but yeah, so this one directed by Don Taylor, 
who had done a lot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents on television, also did later to Damien, The Omen 2. So a lot of uh, genre cred or lack thereof, I guess. I actually haven't seen that one. Uh, judging by your 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 response. Not- oh my gosh, no, you have to see Damien, The Omen 2. It has one of the best elevator kill sequences in all of cinema history. Oh, wow. Okay. Putting on the, the spreadsheet for future franchise detours then, The Omen. Yeah, so this had a reported budget of just two million dollars. Uh, did twelve million domestic, so it was you know a bit of a, a drop from the thirty-two and the nineteen million of the previous two movies. Uh, and of course, they kept the budget down by you know limiting. There's only a couple apes in this movie, and it's set in the human world, so not a lot of production design necessary. Uh, you know, not creating the ape society in the same way. But I think a lot of people forget that this is a time when sequels were sort of a rarity it was always expected a sequel was going to be a drop in profits uh it wasn't necessarily like nowadays where you know the sequel doubles the gross of the original kind of thing uh how do you how do you what do you think that this franchise reflects on how franchise filmmaking has changed uh you know over the over the decades well i mean the the crazy thing is is that when you dealt with franchise films, especially during this period, it was a case of every film was made with a smaller budget than the one that preceded it. Right. And that you wanted to milk these films and this series as much as you could, but you needed to turn a profit. And so if you spent $5 million on the first one, you're going to spend $4 million on the second one. If you spent $4 million on the second one, you're going to spend maybe 3 or $2 million on the third one and then it just kind of keeps going down which in some ways is kind of what's crazy about parts four and five i'm sure you'll talk about Mm -hmm. that when you get to four because four did not have a bigger budget than three did um and yet the scope and the size of four is insane for everything that they Mm -hmm. pull off um but that's a different conversation for the next time that you do this three is genius because they are working with a smaller budget but to get around that but but the ape effects are actually better in this mm-hmm. film than they arguably are in the last one, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And that's because they didn't have to reuse prosthetics. They didn't have to use um, they didn't have to use non-moving prosthetics for all of the people that didn't have speaking roles or anything like that. Um, because they only had to focus on two apes technically three apes but unfortunately you know dr milo's not around that long spoiler alert sorry people um, <laughs> r.i.p dr milo um but you know they only had to focus on two characters and because you have roddy mcdowell and kim hunter as those two characters you want them to be as expressive as possible and so the makeup effects are actually better in this one than they were probably in the last one so the the, the smaller budget didn't hurt in that way and, and what a smart decision to hang this movie on Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter, who are probably my two favorite characters in the series up to this point anyway. So it's like you give them, they're the only returning stars here. Hunter is con- completing essentially the Zero trilogy mm-hmm. uh, of this franchise. So having them lead this movie in the way that they do is such a smart way, like you said, not only of, of saving uh, on the budget, but also doing the complete inverse of the original film where you have them washing up on literally the planet of the humans basically is what the script is. And I think that's such a smart way to keep those characters. You keep the continuity of the original films. You honor that what happened 
but you flip the premise completely on its head and you open up a whole other set of moral questions and, and uh, consequences for this trip of theirs back in time. Exactly. And I think one of the brilliant choices that ended up being made and, um, you know, and, and whether that was Don Taylor's choice, Paul Dine's choice, or one of the producers, um, my brain just stopped working all of a sudden, the, the longtime producer for the series. Um, uh, uh, Is it Arthur P. Jacobs? Yeah, as you say, Arthur P. Jacobs. Um, whoever's decision it was to actually have the cold open of of the apenauts re- pulling off their helmets and revealing themselves on the beach as the, as the actual first thing that we see, mm. that was a phenomenal decision because the original shooting script and they shot scenes for it was where, th- were, were Zira and Dr. Milo and Cornelius seeing the earth die, watching the explosion from that, that, uh, that world killer nuclear bomb and seeing the earth burst into flames. That was the original opening scene. And they got rid of that instead for that cold open. And that was so smart because it really tells you right away that we are flipping things completely. This is not, this is not the, the ape series that you have become used to for the last two films. We are now throwing things on their head and it is the inverse of everything that you've seen before. And it allows them to actually go into being a prequel and telling you how things happened, but in a way that doesn't feel facile, doesn't feel false, that actually feels true to the craziness of this series. Um, and it lets, and lets you latch on to characters you already know and trust and love in an ongoing story. So even though it's a prequel, it's a sequel for them because it's an ongoing story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it, this is probably at least up until this point, certainly the most character driven of these three movies, I think, because it is these two characters put in this situation and it's not only uh, like you were saying, a continuation of their story, but it also raises all kinds of questions. It's it's the classic sort of time travel paradox. It's like if they hadn't gone back in time, and this is, I guess, a question I'm, I'm asking you, if they hadn't gone back in time, like is it them going back in time here that, that always caused things or did they change things by, by going back? It's the Terminator question, essentially, you know, and, and I... It's it's sort of that self fulfilling prophecy that you 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 see play out more in the next film, where the humans are so afraid of these talking apes that they they you know they react so strongly to Caesar, and then therefore inspire Caesar to lead a revolution. And it's kind of like, at what point does them going back it change history? And at what point was that always going to be the case? Well, and that's the fun of time travel films, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah that inherent conundrum of what, how, when, why, um, or, you know, the words that the journalist lives by too. But I mean, but that is also what a time travel is. It is, you know, who, uh, who, what, where, why, how, and when, because you don't know how all of that is affecting everything and what pieces fit where, and if these things would have happened without them tinkering. Um, So, you know, it's like, but you can take it back even further then. It's like if Taylor had not gone into outer space, would he, that not have you know, and landed on that and landed back on Earth? Would that not have triggered everything? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, if they would have ended up at the destination they thought they were going to end up at. <laughs> I mean, and, but that's always the fun. That's the silliness of time travel in film and in media and in art is that it, it's impossible to get any actual resolutions to anything. And it's just fun to play with and poke holes in and try to make sense of and just enjoy. And it also allows you, as all good to great sci-fi should, comment on the issues of the time, but in a way that maybe audiences don't quite notice is happening. Mm-hmm. This feels 100%, this whole franchise, this original five especially, feels so born of the the hippie movement of the like Vietnam era because it's all very anti-establishment. This whole thing is, even this one where they're like, oh, you know, we have to make sure you you uh your story ends up into the you know delivered to the right people and i'm like the right people the government are not the right people especially not this era um so i love the way that that this movie sort of plays with that and also watching it now in a modern context not only is is there the the sort of moral questions that i think it's dr hasling that that played by uh, the young and the restless veteran eric braden which weird to see him this young in this movie, uh, knowing 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 him as as Victor Newman from that show, but also, you know, should should they alter the future? Should they change things? Is this the way? Is this what was always destined to happen? At what point are they meddling with air quotes God's plan? And I think it's it's interesting not only from that perspective, but also this thing works as a kind of allegory for you know either nuclear war or climate change. There's also issues in here where uh, they're talking about women's rights. They're taking over Zira's right to her own body. So watching it now and with everything happening in the news, it feels more topical than ever, which I think is is part of the power of this original Apes franchise. That it really, even when, you know, as we said, the prosthetics for Zira and Cornelius still hold up pretty well. Even when, you know, the other, the gorilla suit in this movie, it looks terrible. And like, there's some certain era, uh, areas here and there where it's a little dated. You know, the score feels very early 70s in that way. Uh, the ideas are so strong and so potent. Even like 50 years later, we're watching it. I'm like, damn it. Like this, all of these movies holds up in one way or another. And this is no exception. Well, I think you have to go back to um, Pierre Boulet's source material. I mean... Sure. Pierre was a was a socially conscious writer. I mean, you look at The Bridge on the River Kwai, you look at Planet of the Apes, you look at his other work. And I mean, Planet of the and screenwriter um, Paul Dine, you know, was very open about it. He went back to the original source material for inspiration on this film. And, you know, that that original book that original story is very much about race is very much about race. It really is about gender and race and social, you know, and what was happening in the world at that time, especially with the civil rights movement in the United States, it is a commentary on those things. And so one of the smart things about escape from planet of the apes is that it's, it's, it, 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 lulls you in with a, like a false sense of security in a way that it's going to be this kind of silly and funny film about class and gender and, and um, social stratas 
and you know um, political dynamics and all these sort of things. And then all of the sudden it kind of pivots and it really is about race and gender where, oh no, we don't want them having power. We don't want this other usurping us in any way. Um, and then it taps into mythology, it taps into the Bible, it taps into a lot of different things as to the solutions um, that, you know, Dr. Haslin is, is coming up with uh, to try to solve, you know, quote, quote, solve this problem. But in fact, he makes it worse, much like our president, um, you know, William Wyndon theorizes as possible that, you know, hey, this didn't work so well for Herod. It's probably not going to work so well for us if you start doing this. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, he was correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I think that's part of I'm going to ask you later about the legacy of this franchise, but I think that is kind of the 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 magic trick that these movies, at least these early movies especially, play is that Whoa, a planet of apes. Look at the crazy makeup and stuff. How does that work? People are enslaved, et cetera, et cetera. What a crazy world we live in. Everything's topsy-turvy. And then you come into it and that sort of almost B-movie premise is actually, they they dive a lot deeper than it would appear. And I think that, that I mentioned on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the episode for the first movie that this film and 2001 A Space Odyssey, which came out the same year as the original film, I think are are both sort of the the crux of sci-fi kind of more overtly having ideas in mind and kind of going more mainstream with that sort of intellectual social commentary and things. And I think that this movie, you know, yes, you get them in the 70s and it's like, you know, they, now they're the the fish out of water and you get to see Cornelius in a suit and and you know, uh, Zira decides that she loves grapes because of uh, Grape Juice Plus, and and you get all these fun little little you know jokes and references to the era in which this movie came out, and I think that's all there. But it, like you said, they're also not afraid to go dark with it. The way that this movie ends, it's like it's heads and tails <laughs> completely different. Like it's like every time I watch, you know, every time I watch these movies, I just like damn, like every time they have that, it's like a gut punch of an ending. The first one, if you'd never seen the first, if you didn't know somehow about the the big twist at the end of the first one, that is a huge rug pull. The end of the second one, like we said, and then here, just like how far they take it. It's it's mind-blowing that, that you know, they're able to kind of get away with some of this at, at the time. Well, and, and this film, you know, it's very clever how they really get mm -hmm. to start touching on and talking about these big themes. I mean, the way that Z realizes that she should not talk about dissecting humans during that first discussion. Mm -hmm. I mean, that first time she's being interviewed by the um, government panel. And then later on where she is forced to talk about it, that leads to the humans having the discussion of we're horrified. This is awful. We can't imagine, but we do this all of the time. Mm -hmm. So who's to say, to, you know, 200 centuries from now, 2000 years from now, if we are the animals, how are we supposed to judge them for doing the same that we are doing in this moment? Which is not an easy thing for audiences at that time to sort of digest and think about. 
And we have that vocalized through Bradford Dillman as Dr. Dixon, which is always, it's always uh, interesting to see what the human allies in these films, what, what shape they take. I mean, you have uh, Taylor in the first one and Brent in the second one and here principally Dr. Dixon and Stevie played by Natalie Trundy, who, like we were saying, Arthur P. Jacobs, Mary, she's married to him at the time. So she's in four out of these five movies, <laughs> uh, which I, you know, I don't think she's, she's not bad. She's fine. I think in these movies, she's just kind of there. Uh, a part of things, you know, she's the only actor I think in any of these in these fran- in this franchise to play a mutant and a human and an ape. So she's got that going for her, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I, I what are you what are your thoughts on Doctor Dixon as sort of the uh, the ally of the the apes as the the human who who understands what they're trying to say and he's actually the one that says, well, you know, yeah, we do that to animals all the time, and I guess if we're considered humans in your world, like. You know, I, I I get where you're coming from, but you know, maybe keep that to yourself because um, I think he, he's really important here. Yeah, Bradford Dillman's quite good in the film, um, and you know, so. one of the some people were always like, "Oh, he doesn't quite have enough to do, and and he should be, you know, he should have more time and whatnot." And it's like, no, he actually, it, it's not his film. This is this, yep. this is Cornelius and Zira's film. It's their story, but for what he's asked to do. It was very smart to cast an actor of his, you know, sort of laconic gravitas, if you will, where, you know, he, he could just so easily fit into that role where you could either he be, he could become sort of um, the, the smarmy politico that you want to just slap like in a Dirty Harry movie, or he can become the comforting doctor who you do root for. In this film, um, who does feel like a voice of reason and wisdom that you want to believe, he was always very good at doing that, and and it and it's a it, this this role in a lot of ways feels tailor made to him and his and his sensibilities and the persona that he really was able to sort of manufacture um, over you know multiple decades and some very you know iconic and well remembered films ranging from you know. Uh, uh, the enforcer to piranha to this film to so many others. Yeah. I think it's, it's always interesting too. Cause I agree with you in this, this is arguably the first movie of this franchise where the apes are the main characters. I think you'll, you will see later with the, the reboot films, how Caesar just kind of gradually inches his way into the un- undisputed protagonist of that franchise. You know, we have, Franco in Rise, and then in the second one, it's Caesar, but also kind of, kind of Jason Clark is like a weak, a weak uh, second lead. And then when we get to the third one, it's just like straight up Caesar's story. I think here you see sort of a similar evolution. So it's fun to always take a step back and look like, okay, well, how is humanity represented? And so you have the the sort of the the moralistic side through Doctor Dixon and Stevie, and then Doctor Hasling, who's a character who's also sort of uh, viewing back to a callback in the previous movies because Taylor does mention the Hasleyan curve, I believe. And mm-hmm. it's part of, he, he had theories about time travel and time space continuums and all that stuff. So it's fun to sort of tap into that. And I think Eric Braden, who was apparently in my research, you know, I, I discovered was kind of skeptical of this role, thought it was a caricature, et cetera, which it is, but I feel like he, he does a lot he does a lot with a little, I guess, in this oh, film. Yeah. Like it's it's a it's a in a lot of ways a one dimensional character, but I think he he brings a lot of gravitas 
to this uh, to this character. And, and you know, it's so often in these movies, the conflict is apes versus humans or apes versus apes or whatever the case may be. So to have sort of a singular villain, I think is uh, is is really notable. And here, I think Doctor Otto Hasslein is stands out in that way. Like it makes sense why he would represent the the fear, like you were saying earlier, the fear of the other, the fear of of uh, what man's dark destiny really is. And I think, yeah, he does a he does a lot in this movie. I was I was surprised rewatching it. One, Eric Braden being so young watching this movie and 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 because again the vision we have of him now not look like this and uh and that he makes such an impact with again such a a, on on paper such an underwritten role well i mean he he comes to believe you know it's kind of like we look at politicians or we look at sports figures and we like say oh they've started believing their own press and he he comes to believe his own quote quote press if you will in that he is the only one who can stop this from happening. He is the mm-hmm. smart one in the room. He is the one that's sitting there on that panel that when Zira mentions time travel, he's like, oh, yes, that's the only plausible that, you know, that's the only plausible way that this could be happening right now. Um, that's the first answer that I've heard that makes sense. So he mm-hmm. begins to believe he is the only one that can stop this. He's the only one that can see the truth when he and by doing that, he ends up clouding his own vision he actually becomes less scientifically astute um, as the film progresses because he becomes more obsessed with ending what he sees as this oncoming threat and that's what makes him such a perfect villain for and also the instigator for what's going to happen over the next 2000 years Mm -hmm. he has that scene where he's on the talk show and he's doing the the infinite regression theory, which I think was really, was really, it it was really interesting one as a concept. And also as of course, this idiot would have a, 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 an elaborate theory that he thinks makes sense of everything because he thinks he knows everything. It's kind of like, like you were saying, he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm the person that that's, I'm the the person that needs to step in here. I'm the savior of humanity essentially, because I, I'm the only one that gets it. Uh, which is, you know, it's such a true villain thing. Like, oh, no one sees what I see. It's the whole, you know, not to go. It's hard. It's hard to not mention Marvel so much, but it's like the whole Thanos thing. It's like, oh, this is the only way. I only, I'm the only one that sees it. I'm the only one willing to do what's necessary. That kind of thing. And I think in in this scenario, it really makes sense uh, to have that character be that way. Um, what do you think of the addition of Doctor Milo? Do we really did we really need a third ape in this movie mm-hmm. at this point? Well, you need Dr. Milo only because you have to have a reason for them to be able to have worked, how to be able to get the spaceship up and running. Um, And, you know, and Dr. Milo is talked about as a different kind of, you know, astrophysicist and scientist and theorist. Um, And he, you know, he worked in a different field than either Cornelius or Zira did, you know. So it would not be plausible for the two of them to be able to get Taylor's ship up and running again. Now the, the the big the the more fun question and the bigger question is how did they lift <laughs> off? How did they actually lift off out of the planet? <laughs> I mean, how did that work? But whatever, we'll just buy it. We'll go with it. You know, it's a planet of apes. It's like Dr. you know, well, certain things out, you guys gotta. You know, just as as Zira says, you know, he was he was the smartest one of the um, of them all, and he only understood <laughs> you, half of what was happening. So, 
whatever. Yeah. He, he's <laughs> the second. He's the second. We need him to set things up. He needs to yeah, be exactly. to be plausible for stuff to be happening. But I do feel right. sad that, you know, for Sal Minio, he had to, you know, put all those prosthetics on and be there for a few days. And that's like, okay, you're done. I know. <laughs> He's the he's the sacrificial lamb essentially yeah. to get the to to justify this entire premise. I guess yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I I I, I buy it based purely on that. Uh, one thing too, you know, like like we were saying, the previous two films didn't establish that they, that uh, there was a character named Doctor Milo first of all, or that they were working on getting the ship up and running. But you have to just assume that a lot was happening during Beneath that we weren't seeing. But I, I also love that obviously had they hadn't planned to make a third movie because the second movie ends pretty definitively. Uh, and it wasn't until the box officers deceits came in that they're like, um, another one, please. Yeah. I'll take another one, uh, which, you know, it's fair. But even even in that movie, they mentioned that Zira is pregnant. It's like very casual sort of in, a, in that one scene with uh, with Brent comes to their house with with mm-hmm. Nova you know, looking for, uh, they're looking for help. And I love one thing that I love so much is when a, a franchise does not plan for sequels and yet finds those little nuggets in previous entries. I'm sure on a previous episode, I, I mentioned the, you know, the, like the pirates of the Caribbean dead man's chest is a good example where they're like, Ooh, we're going to use that compass. And that's going to, the compass that we alluded to maybe doing something in the first one. And we're going to have it be the entire MacGuffin for the rest of this you know, the next two movies, essentially. Um, I, I love I love that they find those little things. So they're not contradicting what came before. They're just expounding on it. So having her be pregnant and have that be the entire crux of this movie, I think is is kind of genius in a way. Well, and it allows, again, it allows you to um, be a prequel without being a prequel. I mean, yeah. it, it's the ongoing story for these characters for Cornelius and zero. This is their life. This is their story. It hasn't, it's been going in a linear direction. It's the series that's gone backwards, but their life is going in a linear direction. It folds around on itself. These five movies, basically to the point that you get to the, (laughs) yeah, go ahead. Much like the picture of the artist painting the landscape of the landscape of the artist painting. And it's an infinite loop. (laughs) Exactly. Well, to the point, do you get to the fifth one and it's with like 29 something in battle and he's telling the story of like 1970 or whatever, like with Caesar's kind of, you know, continuing rise to power. I think that's, it's, it's interesting that it's, they, they get to the point in the last movie that they're just kind of bouncing back and forth using that as a framing device. Um, I love, we, we already said how, how smart it is that they, they have put Cornelius and Zira at the center here. They are Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter are so good in this movie. And I think don't get enough credit for all that they do in this film, particularly in a lot of the, the hearing scenes where Roddy McDowell is, is, is uh, explaining where they came from or where he's telling, I think it's Dr. Dixon where he's telling him basically the origin of the planet of the apes, which is a little bit of a contradiction. Cause I think in the previous, in the first movie, they don't really know, that's like a secret history that only Zayas knows. Uh, but again, it's one of those things you have to sort of accept the like, all right, the frame movie goes on, the franchise continues, the story sort of evolves. Uh, how much does Roddy McDowell, uh, do Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter bring to this thing? Because I, I think it doesn't work. It, it, no, with lesser actors, like 
this sci-fi is very tricky and that you're on a razor's edge if this is going to be compelling and powerful and profound in times or ridiculous and laughable. And those two actors are the complete linchpin for whether this movie is a mess or as one of the, I would say one of the strongest entries in the franchise. Um, I think of the original five films, it's the strongest entry yeah. of sequels. I mean, without any question, it's, I think it's easily the best of the four sequels in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it, it, but I mean, it does, I mean, it does not work without them. If you do not have Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter in these roles, and if they are not giving it everything that they have, and if they are not taking it seriously, it does not work without them. And, you know, and Fox was smart, even on a lower budget, they're casting Bradford Dillman and Eric Braden and William Winden and um, Albert Salmi and M. Emmett Walsh in one of his early roles. And the great John Randolph as the chairman of that committee. I mean, there are some yeah. really solid, terrific character actors sprinkled throughout. And then all of a sudden you have Ricardo Maltobons show up at the mm-hmm. end and it's, Perfect, genius casting and how they convinced him to appear in those two movies. I will never quite understand or know or whatever, but genius, beautiful casting. All of that said, none of this works without McDowell and Hunter, you know, and and they apparently just adored one another. They really, really loved working together and it shows and it's also mm-hmm. kind of interesting because mcdowell wasn't quite as much of a method actor as hunter was and hunter was like a die hard i have worked with brando for three years on broadway and treat car named <laughs> desire and got an oscar for playing the same role in that movie i mean she was a bonafide method queen um, and yet the two of them just clicked. They were just on the same page. They they could do no wrong together. And I think it shows. Um, and you're right. I mean, McDowell in those moments, he's wonderful. He's just so believable. He's he's so human, if you'll forgive me from say, for saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, but goodness gracious is Kim Hunter just flat out brilliant throughout this movie. Those scenes where she's not able to talk. And she's doing those tests and you can just watch her her indignation and her fury just build, but in a way that just fit the character so beautifully and so precisely and so perfectly um, to that entire sequence where she's, you know, um, testifying for the first time to later on where, you know, she's drugged and she's trying to, you know, she's trying to hold back, but she's just giving everything away. And then the tender moment right after that with her and McDowell, where he is just so angry that his wife has been drugged and had to say all mm-hmm. these things. And she's like, no, it's good. They need to know the truth. Lies are what are going to destroy us. And I'm glad that I told them because they are right in wanting to know. Um, and it's such a beautiful scene and it's just one of those scenes you just don't expect to see in a sci-fi, you know, in a sci-fi thriller like this. And it makes sense for these characters, for what we know of them from the previous movies in the first one, their, their whole, their whole thing is, is as foils for Dr. Zayas being the, the truth seekers, wanting the whole story, wanting to know what these humans are capable of, wanting to know the 
the apes ties to humanity and the history of their planet and all of that. And so it makes sense to get to this point and them to be like, no, I'm tired of lying. I'm tired of, of, you know, pretending that we're something we're not. It's like every, this is, this is the situation. This is not our game. We're not politicians. <laughs> that that's the, uh, that's the orangutans. <laughs> They're the politicians. We don't, that's not our, our jam. Our, we're pacifists. We're very earnest. And that's sort of the, the role that the chimpanzees play uh, in those earlier films, they're just they just uncovering truth and justice. Essentially, is sort of their vibe, and so I I love that we, you know, we get that from them here, and uh, and like you said, there we see so many different facets of them. Uh, we see righteous indignation on the part of Cornelius. We see him accidentally kill a man to to defend his wife and to to save them from the situation that they're in. We see. Um, we even see that they're like joking around. They're joking around in the in the in the hearing where they're like, "Oh, does does the other one speak?" And he's like, "Only when she lets me." And they're like, you know, adorable together. It's 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 wonderful. Well, and you know, and how many films have had two, two films? How many um, films have had such a beautiful and authentic depiction? of a loving marriage. The two of mm-hmm. them don't always agree. And that actually brings them closer Yeah, because absolutely. they disagree because they can actually have arguments with one another. It makes their love stronger. And you just don't see that very often because marriages in film usually have to just be perfect on a level that is not real, or they have to be fractured and flawed in a way that is just, painful and hard to watch and purposely tragic mm-hmm. they just aren't allowed to exist with such authenticity and that's beautiful it makes sense that these two characters would complement each other in the way they do and it's and it makes those little moments like there's a there's a there's a scene in beneath where uh <laughs> where they they have a whole they're pretending what is it they're pretending that cornelius hit zero because she's like or whatever, like, and, and, and you know the way that they're playing up, like what I guess the even ape society's perspective of marriage is, knowing that behind closed doors, like that is not at all the dynamic between the two of them. Like, I I love that kind of stuff. It's just so much fun to see in these. Yeah, no, they're great. They are just it's they, they are the end all be all for this series. Um, for sure. And it, in some ways, it's 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 a shame that she is really unable to continue after this. But you mm-hmm. know, Roddy McDowell. He's great in all five, so it's hard to really complain. Absolutely. Uh, we also get one of the one of the other things about this movie that I that I was like, oh yeah, that's true, is that uh, in this movie where she's like, I'm pregnant, and he's like, here, have some wine, and it's funny to watch it now, knowing like, well, probably not going to help. He's like, why? He's, you know, it's a restorative for you know for pregnant women or stuff, and I'm like, not exactly, dude, but okay, it's the '70s, I guess. I didn't know yet. Um, I always find that a little funny, like when you watch movies from the past and you're like, oh yeah, everybody was smoking because they didn't know the, you know, the consequences of that or whatever the case may be. I think that's really funny. Um, we mentioned Ricardo Montalban a little bit earlier. He's like the secret sauce, I think, to this movie in a, in a way. And this is, you know, before, this is a few years before Fantasy Island and Wrath of Khan and all that. And obviously he'd been in the business a million years before this, uh, yeah, like 30 years star. before this. He's a yeah, big, huge star. Big Big what a what a get for this franchise to have at this point. Um, 
yeah, he just brings so much to the character of Armando, who immediately were like, oh, we can trust this guy. I I have a good feeling about Armando. Like you have to, he has to sell so much about that character pretty much right off the bat. Uh, and I think he does it with such poise and and grace and uh, yeah, what is what does Ricardo Montalban add to this movie in, in such a limited role? Obviously, we get more of them in the next one, but well, I mean, it, it's what you say. It's like it, it's a it's a his you know Armand is such a pivotal character, um, mm-hmm. but he's only in the movie for what ten minutes, maybe something like that. Yeah, I mean, he but he, all these oh, movies uh, are very tight. These movies are all like ninety minutes or less, yeah. essentially. And so he yeah, he arrives at the very very end um but you have to believe and trust this character immediately you have to Mm -hmm. like him immediately and i mean who better you know than a guy that once swam with um uh uh you know was in you know swam with um esther williams you know (laughs) there is just something inherently trustworthy about this guy and he's so charming and so charismatic that when he says something you instantly believe it so it it was it was terrific casting on their part and i get that at this point in his career multiple ricardo multiple was doing a lot of television he was doing a lot of smaller roles he wasn't the huge star anymore but he was still a name people knew who he was i mean it wasn't like It wasn't like you were, you know, it wasn't like he was on, on Skid Row. The, the dude was still extremely right. successful. Um, so for Fox to be able to get him to show up for these two films in such small roles, important, but small mm-hmm. in both films, I, I just, I think that's extraordinary. And I love that they were able to, you know, find a way to pay him enough to get him to do it because he fits so perfectly into this world. Um, and again, He's the reason that you can go with the ending, that you believe that the ending of this film is true, mm-hmm. and that he is also the reason he, he is so good in the next one that you believe that Caesar would go down the direction that he does because of his love for this man that he sees as a father. Yeah. He is Not to spoil anything for people that are going to listen to the next show. Where you're talking about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, like, totally. Um, in a in a franchise that is not making any secret of its animal rights message, to having a character who is so on the side of the animals that he's like, "Oh, I'm going to be in trouble for this." Okay, absolutely, I'm on. Uh, I'm on board. I'll help you. I'll help you guys. Although you know, you do have to love the sort of hypocrisy. Of he he runs a zoo. I mean, he runs he runs a circus. <laughs> he does. I mean, it's a human. he presumably takes he presumably takes care of the animals. Yeah, air quotes, I guess. Circus, but it's still a circus. Yeah, yeah exactly. I know. I know. You gotta love uh, the, yeah. the 1970 rationale of animal rights. I know protecting animal rights is the guy at protect the, them the in the zoo. Yeah. Circus is the nicest person. And then the doctor that works at the zoo is the most humane person. I mean, they have kind of a, a lack of options in this movie. So to be know. fair, no. <laughs> they'll, they'll, you know, they, this is what they have to work with. He is also, I think, in a lot of ways, watching these movies now after having seen, you know, obviously seen the, the reboot movies and now going back and rewatching these again. Um, it's it's always fun, too, to watch these films 
and in the context of the later movies sort of borrowing elements from the original five films and mm-hmm. obviously there's character names that recur there's uh there's plot points that are sort of remixed in different ways and having armando be sort of a, i guess the closest thing these five movies have to an analog to the james franco character from rise like the the human connection that caesar has I think is is sort of interesting uh, well, as Rise a counterpoint. Also does, Rise also does hint at Taylor's, you know, rocket ship adventure. So absolutely does, sure does. Uh, th- this movie also being the only one. This is apparently the only one of the five movies that was purposely left open ended for the sequel. You know, one, two, even four, even four have have pretty definitive endings where any of those movies could have been the end of the franchise. Uh, so them them kind of leaving that open here, I think they pull off essentially not only such a dark ending in that spoilers, Cornelius Zira and uh, oh man, I wish I could remember the the name of the gorilla in the zoo. Uh, Heloise's baby. Yeah. Like are all like mercilessly gunned down. Like I would watch this with my wife again. She hasn't seen any of these five movies until we're watching. I'm watching it for this podcast and I'm roping her into it. Cause I'm like, Hey, you haven't seen any of these Watch them with me. Uh, and she <laughs> was like, couldn't believe that they went that far with it. And, and this is a movie that just blew up. This is a franchise that just blew up the earth in the previous movie. And them shooting a baby chimp is way more shocking. Totally. And in a movie that has been so funny, for the majority yeah. of its running time, it, it really does just change on a it, – it doesn't so much change on a dime, but the tone does noticeably shift. And, mm-hmm. it's, and once it starts shifting, it is quite um, upsetting. And by the time it gets to that ending, you just your, – your heart is in your throat. You just don't know what yeah. to do. It's – I mean with Beneath – it always is kind of building there. Yeah. It's not really a shock when Taylor says, screw it. Well, just- Taylor's whole Taylor's whole thing in the first movie is like, oh, there's got to be something out there better than yeah. man. We suck. Let's like, and then at the end of Beneath, he's like, nah, we just, just, just blow the whole thing up. We, just, we messed up. We'll just start over. Um, it's going to mess. Yeah, hit we, the all reset button. Up. we all collectively messed up. We're just going to start over. That's it. Yeah. But yeah. 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 Of- <laughs> Always kind of building there. So it's not, you know, it's shocking, but it's not necessarily a shock. There's, you know, mm. two different things there. The ending of this one is just so bleak and stark when right. you compare it to what, just how how lively and energetic and full of hope and love it is during that first, you know, half. Um, you spend so much time in this movie getting to know Cornelius and Zira and their personal lives, not just through the eyes of an astronaut that landed on their planet or whatever. Like it's, you're so living in, in their, in their situation that for them to both be so, so like mercilessly killed off like that, it's, it's heartbreaking. And yeah. Yeah. Because the first half of the film is so funny and so filled with love and so tinged with hope. When we see little Milo at the end, who will eventually rename himself Caesar. When we see him at the end, we do feel that hope. And it's because mm-hmm. the first half of the film works so well that even in the face of such tragedy, hope can still exist. Yeah. It's also the probably the second best 
twist ending of this series, I would say. It's it's positioned as a twist ending. Did you did you did you see that coming? The baby swap at the end of this movie, the first time you watched it, or did you did it take you by surprise? Because it is very well, the first time I watched it is very I, sort of subtle. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I was probably like seven or eight years old. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, Didn't see it coming. I'm not necessarily going to say I saw it coming, but I'm not going to say I didn't see it coming either. Right. Because I can't remember exactly when I watched it. Um, it's very possible I watched Conquest before I watched this one. And you were so, just really confused. Like, what is going so, on? Who is- yeah, so it's, it's very likely that when I watched this one, I knew that the baby couldn't die because the baby's the main character in the next film. That's true. There you go. Um, but I can't answer that definitively because I honestly can't remember when I actually you know, watched what order I watched them all in. I know I did not watch them all in order until they were available on VHS. That was the first mm-hmm. time I was ever able to watch the films in order. Because I, I think that the momentum of that last 20, 20 minutes or so, I guess it moves so fast that it's easy to to not realize that there was a baby swap that happened off screen. Uh, I I think, I think it really works. And the the sort of, again, the, the um, incredible thing about these movies is that by the end of these films, we come to love Cornelius. We come to love zero. We come to empathize with Caesar that we're actively rooting against humanity Uh, for a lot of these movies. We're like, yeah, get those people you know, Abe's rule. Like, you know, I think that's something you see a lot more, even especially in the rebooted films where we're so on the side of the apes that it's, you know, the movie sort of uh, hoodwinks us in a way to, to, to root against our species. And I think it's, it, it's, it's the, it's that complex moral gray area that these films live in where they're able to sort of humanize the apes. And I, I, I sort of, I don't know. I don't know. I would say demonize the humans, but it's not really, it's more like, they position it more as showing the humanity's true colors through the lens of, of this opposing species. And I think it's, it's really interesting to see like where the audience's loyalties are supposed to lie in any given movie. Cause when it starts, we're on Taylor's side. We're like, what is going on? Why are there apes lobotomizing humans and locking us up, et cetera. And then you get to this movie and you're like, Oh my God, we're monsters. No wonder. Like we had it coming. Yeah. Then you get to the next one and who? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Boy. Um, deserved. I, I love that you you kind of grew up watching these movies, though, because I feel like when people talk about these first five movies, if they talk about these first five movies, they talk about the first one and Beneath, Escape, Conquest, Battle, all sort of left into the ether of cinematic history. And I and I think that's... I don't. I think that's doing a disservice to these movies because I think they're really interesting. Like watching them now, I'm just like, God damn it! Like every single one, it's there's they're bringing something to the table. They're trying. Like none of these. Again, I can't speak for Battle because I haven't rewatched that one for this podcast yet. But Beneath Escape and Conquest, they're none. None of these movies are phoning it in. Like they are legitimately trying to tell an interesting story with these characters, and I think most of the time succeeding. And I I agree with you. Escape is by far my the, the best of those four sequels, I, I would say. And the time travel stuff is a part of it. And I think just putting McDowell and Hunter at the center is is a, a you know probably the, the biggest decision that they make that makes this a success. I think part of that just has to go with just just goes with availability. Um Planet of the Apes is very, very easy to get. Mm-hmm. 
It's very, I mean, it's almost always streaming on some service at some point for free. It gets shown on Turner Classic Movies, you know, multiple times a year. Um, Whenever anybody talks about doing another Apes movie, it leads people back to watching the first film. And it has mm-hmm. one of the one of the best shock endings in cinema history. And so all of that leads to people being able to watch it. The thing mm-hmm. about the four sequels is, yes, you can technically go onto Amazon and purchase them or whatever. Or they're just not easy, though, to watch. They very right. rarely get screened on TCM. They very rarely show up. <laughs> you know, on television anywhere anymore. This isn't like the 1980s where, you know, you have broadcast stations that need to fill, you know, to fill time. And so they just get shown. It isn't like there's a television show that's going along with them anymore. Um, And so they're just harder to see. Um, so, So I think that's part of the reason that they don't get talked about as much or, you know, referred to as much is just because, for today's audiences over the past two decades, and especially once we've gone into the streaming age, they're just more difficult to get your hands on. Um, mm-hmm. Where the Burton film and then the three um, the, the three reboot films are very easy to get your hands on. Um, and so that just makes it, more difficult to, to, for these films to get appreciated for the risks that they take, the silliness that they have, um, and just how much fun they are. Even the bad yeah. one, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, is still fun. And yeah. you know, I will say it doesn't help that the first four films are kind of downers. <laughs> they really they are. are. They <laughs> are. I mean, fun. <laughs> I think that they're fun. I think that they're really entertaining and they're very enjoyable. Um, but let's be honest, I mean, they're all kind of doubters with how they end. I know. When I started rewatching them for this podcast, I was just like, oh, man, that's right. I just strapped myself in for nine movies of, you know, humanity sucks. <laughs> We're doomed to, you know, destroy ourselves, etc. Like, they are very cynical movies um, in a lot of ways. But like you said, there's enough, you know, there's enough of a, there's enough self-awareness in this, in these early ones that they do leave some room for levity and they do, you know, have interesting points to make about social commentary and things like that and about our culture and things and stuff. So I think there's, yeah. How do we get these movies on Disney plus, I guess is my point. This is Fox. Why is it not on Disney plus or Hulu or whatever? Like, like push some of the, push some of those star Wars TV shows uh, aside for a second and like, we just put these up there. I don't understand what the problem is. I think it does seem with, like with the new one coming out, like it's, it feels like they would be doing that. It does seem like all five of these would be perfect for Disney plus. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they certainly fit in with the Disney movies that are on there already. And with some of the Fox films that are on there already. And I think Planet of the apes might be on Disney plus right now. Um, but I'd have to go double check and I'm not sure on that. So don't quote me. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, and, you know, and obviously it's all about deals and who gets what when and all of that right. sort of stuff. So it's not like it's not like stuff can just magically appear on your streaming service just because you own it at this point. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was wrong. It is not on Disney Plus at the moment. Wow. It's actually not. Yeah. Anywhere. 
the moment. Oh, well. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. What's going on? Hopefully, you know, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes comes out next year in 2024. Yeah. Hopefully by then, some of these things, they'll, they'll maybe they'll reissue it on Blu-ray or they'll put it on somewhere streaming because I think these this franchise is woefully, by today's standards, woefully underseen. Uh, and honestly, I would even consider the, the reboot trilogy even those movies, I feel like, you know, I, I, re- I recorded these out of order. So I've already recorded the one on Dawn. Uh, and my guest and I are like, yeah, this is one of the best like blockbusters of the past decade. Why is nobody talking about it? Where Where's the love for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think people hear that title and they're like, oh, that sounds silly. Like, you know, younger people who haven't seen any of these movies really, or maybe seen one or two. And I think there's... You know, don't sell them short, I think is what we're saying. Uh, is there oh, anything else Dawn, about... Dawn sorry, go ahead. War, I was going to say, Dawn, and, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War of the Planet of the Apes, two of the greatest sequels ever made. Yeah. And I no question whatsoever. I love when uh, occasionally you'll see, you know, on film Twitter, people will be like, you know, oh, the best trilogies, et cetera. And sometimes they'll throw the reboot trilogy in there of Planet of the Apes. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's totally respectable choice. Those... All three of those movies are, are really solid. Uh, I, I, you know, I think Dawn and War. I agree with you. Dawn and War are a little stronger than Rise, but like, but that's, yeah, that's Rise is Rise has to. Yeah. It's the world building movie. It's the one exactly. that actually has to get yeah. you back into the series, and it's the one that yes. has to set the stage for all of the interesting stuff to come. So inherently, it tends to not be as interesting as the next two, um, right? And it focuses more on the human characters who are less interesting than the ape characters. hundred <laughs> percent. It's true. hundred percent. It's a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, is there, is there anything about escape from the planet of the apes that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we start moving on? No, I think we mentioned it all. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's funny that I will say this, there has been this like, and it's always hard to say what is like an actual film discussion and what is just a mm-hmm. film Twitter or, you know, a film social media discussion, because sometimes those two things are not the same. Yeah. Most of the time, those two things are not the same, <laughs> um, if we're being completely honest. Um, but there has been a little bit of a discussion because, you know, somebody had, there was a writer that had, had tried to make a case that, um, horror movies had all of a sudden just become political in the last like decade <laughs> uh, and how cool that was and how interesting that was. Yeah. And of course they were wrong. I mean, right. as a genre, horror, sci-fi fantasy have always been inherently political and they have yeah. been since those genres began. You, you know, you can't tell me that Mary Shelley, when she wrote Frankenstein did not have a bigger agenda going on because she did obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting when you go back and you look at this series and you look at something like Escape from the Planet of the Apes, it's obvious what the filmmakers are talking about. <laughs> I mean, yeah. these are in-your-face, not subtle at all, civil rights discussions that are happening in the context of a silly movie about time-traveling apes. But don't take that as a reason not to watch the film. The film is smart. It's fun it's silly it's enjoyable and if you learn something at the same time that's great Mm -hmm. yeah they that's that's the power that sci-fi fantasy and horror have is that they're able to make you think oh you're watching this made up ridiculous silly idea 
and then make those like salient points along the way and and in a way make it more palatable because it's in the veneer of this sci-fi fantasy or horror construct and i think you know yeah a planet full of apes is the perfect allegorical setup for civil rights for animal rights for climate all this stuff that like there's so many themes baked into this uh this concept and i think that it's it's really satisfying when each sequel finds new and different ways to explore that exactly so that being said what is the legacy of this of this franchise sarah well the legacy is that we're still talking about this franchise yeah franchise (laughs) has made an indelible imprint not just into the cinematic landscape but the cultural landscape you you know there are themes and ideas from this series that will last forever, not just the ending of Planet of the Apes. People, whether they realize it or not, frequently reference three of the four sequels. I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people ever reference Battle. But, you know, that's a different, that's a different discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, you and, – and not only has this series withstood this test of time – it's spawned not one, but two successful reboots. Yes, we can say that the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, obviously it did not spawn sequels, it did not keep going, but people forget that it was actually a minor hit at the time. Mm-hmm. Sure was. It's not like Fox lost money on the film. Um, and there was notable interest in in it and there was talk of trying to get a sequel to where burton took things in that film now i'm glad that they didn't i'm glad they went in the other direction that was the smart and proper way to go mm-hmm. but it's a it's a testament to the power of these first five films and to a lesser extent the television series and the animated i mean it just keeps going it it has it the culture has embraced it and it will continue to keep going because of that. And hopefully you're going to get filmmakers like Matt Reeves who are willing and able to put interesting and unique and innovative spins on it and not just retread what we've seen before. If this st- series ever goes like the nostalgia route, then they failed. It needs to mm. keep progressing. It needs to keep talking about current hot button issues. And it needs to keep doing so in ways that are interesting and fascinating, but also fun and entertaining. And hopefully that will be the case. Yeah, I think people generally, you know, obviously we live in such a franchise driven, you know, cinematic landscape now where everything is a sequel, etc. But I mean, there is also something to be said for someone that can take an IP that's been around for decades and do something smart with it and do something air quotes, original with it and do something fresh and reinvigorated in a way. And I think the these most recent Apes movies are such a great example of how you can take this idea, this concept and update it and still take it into corners of that, that universe that we haven't really explored yet. So I'm hopeful, cautiously optimistic that Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes will continue down that track. I hope so. Uh, I, think, uh, I think there is definitely a lot of room for that to continue so i am curious to see what they do with it uh because i think matt reeves really elevated the that trilogy in in in, in, an, in an unbelievably impactful way um do you have a ranking of 
these nine movies or some smattering thereof. Uh, I mean, I'm not. But, sure, you know, I always hate to just rank things. And I like, know top ten. I mean, it's like top ten. <laughs> list. They're just inherently silly, and I always hate doing them at the end of the year when I have to because they're never going to actually be what I think ten years from now. Ten right. years from now, you know, the films that I think are great, the films, the films that I thought were great in 2023, are not necessarily the films I'm going to think are great in 2033, because. Right. It's going to depend on what you know, what themes stick with me, what performances stick with me, um, and how they just withstand the test of time. And also, stuff that I missed. Maybe I'll see some things that I had that I wasn't able to watch last year. Um, I mean, if I was to do a rough ranking, Planet of the Apes will always be number one. It was it made my mm-hmm. one thousand one great film series from a couple of years ago. It deserved to make that series. It's it's one of the pivotal, iconic sci-fi films of the 20th century and it will it, it is must see for a variety of reasons um i do think that the two um i do think that the two uh reboot trilogy sequels are phenomenal so i'd probably go war and then dawn if somebody was to tell me that they wanted to go dawn before war i would not argue with them i think they are both fantastic and relatively interchangeable as far as which one i prefer on any given day Mm-hmm. Um, then I would go with Escape. I think Escape is the one that people forget about the most, but it is so smart, so intelligent. And it's the most loving of all of the films. It really, truly is a film about love and hope, even though, it, even with that ending. Um, and yeah. and I think people sleep on that with this one. And it's it's really, in many ways, the most inspired. It's goofy. It's weird. Yeah. But it's really smart and inspired when how they figured out how to do the whole time travel thing and get it working. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would probably but, then go Rise mm-hmm. and then Conquest. But again, those two for me could be interchangeable on any given day. Um, Conquest, when you get to it on, uh, in your next show, I mean, it really is brutal and violent and a punch in the mm-hmm. gut. If people think – I mean – there is nothing subtle about the themes of escape from planet of the apes. But if you thought that they were subtle, well, just wait till you get to <laughs> They are basically Stepping taking a and beating you over the head with these themes, but doing yeah. so in a way that forces you to pay attention. Um, I would then probably go beneath and, and then the, the Burton remake um, beneath ahead of the Burton remake only because beneath has that just bizarro, horrifying <laughs> ending where everybody dies. Um, I think Burton's Planet of the Apes gets a bad rap because the first half is very strong. The yeah. second half isn't. And so it's, 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 I don't think it works. I think it's a, I think it's a film that aim, but I do think it's a film that aims high and then just misses its mark. But both Helena Bonham Carter and Tim Roth are freaking fantastic in that. Film. I agree. Completely, um, and, yeah. You know, for people that want to poo-poo it, you really need to watch those two performances because those two performances are magnificent. Yes, it does have a big wet noodle at the center where <laughs> the human protagonist is. Flat. I was going to be like, I can't imagine who you're talking about. Yeah, well, I am talking about Mark Wahlberg. You are correct. Yeah. Uh, but he, I mean, and he's not interesting, but just kind of remove him from when you're watching it and watch the people playing the apes. Everybody in that movie that's playing an ape is great. Not just Tim Roth and Helena Bottom Carter, but they are fantastic. And then last would be Battle of Planet of the Apes, just because it's kind of boring. And that's the one <laughs> thing you cannot say about any of the other eight films. For all of their flaws, yeah. 
all of their highs, for all of their lows, for all of their missteps, for all of the things that they get right. None of them are boring. Battle for the Planet of the Apes is kind of boring. If I'm being completely honest, <laughs> it's a little boring. A part of me kind of wonders, and again, haven't watched, haven't rewatched Battle for this series just yet, uh, as of this recording. Part of me wonders if Battle hadn't been made, if it would have, if the if the reputation for these movies would have been a little bit stronger. Like if they they just made one too many, where then people were like, okay, this thing is out of gas. Never mind. Like well, yeah, had they just ended on conquest, it would have been a little, you know, left them in a stronger position going forward. You have to remember with the sequels, they came one every year. It's like a Friday they the sure did. movie. It's like yeah. they came every single year. Um, and so just, you know, with the way that the productions were rushed and with the decreasing budgets and with the mm-hmm. pressure being put on the writers and the directors to, you know, to with what they were doing, it's, it's really not too surprising that by the time you got to battle for the planet of the apes, that they were running on fumes. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. But yeah, no, I agree with you. My, my ranking would probably be pretty similar to yours. I think, uh, almost universally fascinating movies, mostly good movies. So yeah, definitely people check out those, but Sarah, this has been such a blast. I'm so glad we got you on here to talk about escape from the planet of the apes. Uh, I, I know when, when we were going back and forth about this and I was like, here's what's left. You were like, escape, I'll take escape. I was like, wise choice. I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Uh, tell people where they can find you on social media. Um, so I, uh, I am at Twitter at movie freak, Sarah. I am also on Instagram now, uh, movie freak, Sarah, but I, can't remember what my handle is for Instagram because I'm a horrible human being and I always forget to post on Instagram. So it's a variation on Movie Freak, Sarah. Um, I'm not quite People sure. could search the, the search your name; they'll find you there. Yeah, you search my name, you're gonna find me. I'm there. <laughs> um, I'm not too difficult, you know. Oh wait, oh, I'm Movie Freak, Sarah Michelle. Sorry, there you go. Okay. Oh, there you go. I did. I, I came to you just in time. Um, and then you can obviously still find me at moviefreak.com. You can find me at um, in the Seattle Gay News, which is the sgn.org. Uh, and then I'm a variety of other places. You never know where I'm going to be. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it works. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Sarah. This was a blast. We'll definitely get you back on here uh, sometime soon. Would love it. Anytime. I'm always available. Uh, if people want to check out my unforgettable series where I do an anniversary every month of a notable film, please do. Absolutely. Check that out people. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Big thanks to film critic, Sarah Michelle Fetters for coming on to discuss 1971's escape from the planet of the apes. I bet you didn't think this series was going to go time travel with the third installment. Neither did I when I first saw this uh, just a few years ago, actually. So I want to know, what were your thoughts watching Escape from the Planet of the Apes for the very first time? Whenever that was, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode as we enter into the conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, that'll be an interesting one considering especially the reboot trilogy that we'll have uh, be talking about later on but that's next episode for now that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production catch you at the next stop everyone
This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs> <laughs>